Moving right along this morning, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So a defense attorney was defending a client on the charge of murder. He knew he didn't have a very good case. His client would likely be convicted because the evidence was just too overwhelming. The one thing they had going for them, though, in their case was that the, there was never a body recovered from it. So the defense attorney said that should cause a shadow of a doubt. So he said to the jury, he said, in this case, um, this trial, you've heard many facts, you've heard many testimonies, um, and very strong testimonies, but said, you know, the one thing that the prosecution, prosecution hasn't come up with is, is a, a dead body. So he said, and the reason that is, is because that person, that so-called victim, is still actually alive. And will walk through the back room of this courtroom in within 60 seconds. Well, the jury's eyes got wide and looked at the back door of the courtroom and 60 seconds came and 60 seconds went and nobody came through the back door and the lawyer said, okay, I'll admit that was a little bit of trickery, but he said, the fact that you looked with anticipation at that back door means that you had a shadow of a doubt, a reasonable doubt that my client is guilty. Therefore, you have to declare him not guilty. So he felt pretty good about this. The jury was sent out to deliberate, and they came back in 20 minutes. They came back. The verdict was guilty as charged. The lawyer said, I, I, you know, I don't understand this. So we went and talked to the foreman of the jury later. He said, you know, I thought I had you guys. You all looked at that back door. That meant there was reasonable doubt. And the foreman said, yeah, you know. He said, every one of us looked at the back of the, of, the, of the courtroom, and the prosecuting attorney looked at the door. The judge looked at the door. Everybody in the courtroom looked at the back door, except your client didn't look at the back door. He knew that that person wasn't going to be coming through. Okay. This morning I want to deal with, that was my story about doubt. So I want to I deal with this issue of doubt that we have in our lives. Doubt has been described as um, a state of mind, sort of drifting between belief and unbelief. Um, but there's more of to the, than that. It's a place of sometimes uncertainty, apprehension, um, hesitation might be some words that we would use for that. It's a place where there's um, not sure footing, that we feel like we're slipping, right? Afraid to take a step. Doubt, it's not a good place to be, it's not a fun place to be, but it's an all too common place um, that we are, that we end up being. Now, on the surface, it seems like the skeptic, right, or the unbeliever is the one that, that wrestles with doubt. But when we look at it from a biblical perspective, we're going to find some surprises here today. From the biblical perspective, doubt is really an issue with Christians. It's really an issue with believers, um, not skeptics. It's the believer who struggles with doubt. And believe it or not, and maybe you do because you've been with me for a while, believe it or not, there, this book, this Bible is chocked full of examples of followers of Christ, followers of God, and examples of people who doubted in one way or another. One of the examples you might remember, we talked about this a couple of years ago, but the disciples and Jesus were out you know, ministering to people, and then Jesus sent his disciples onto the other side of the river, or the other side of the lake, I mean, the other side, um, to, um, to sail over there. He said, and I'll catch up with you later. I'm not sure what the plan was or what they thought his plan was to catch up with them later on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That was the plan. So they went out there, the disciples took the boat out, and all night there says the wind was contrary. In other words, blowing them, keeping them from getting to their destination. Right? About the middle of the night, 
lo and behold, here comes Jesus with his plan of how to get there. He's walking across the water, right? And once they realize that this is not a ghost, that there's actually Jesus out there, Peter says, I want to do what you're doing. I want to be with you. I want to come out there. If it's really you, uh, bring me out there. And Jesus said, giddy up, come on out. And Peter, much to um, his credit and our surprise, maybe got out of the boat and walked across the water, started walking across the water to Jesus. But then we all know what happened. He took his eyes off Jesus, started thinking about the waves, started thinking about the water, and he started to sink, right? Started to walk to Jesus, and he started to sink. And then um, Jesus comes to him, right? Closes the gap to him, reaches out in his hand, and he says this in Matthew 14, 31. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed Peter's hand saying, you man of weak faith, why did you begin to have doubts? It's an important wording here. Why did you begin to have doubts? Why did you waver? Why did you change your mind? Because that's what that word means. That that Greek word here means to waver. Waver is closely related to the word weigh. So when we waver, we're taking things and we're weighing it out, trying to figure it out. And Jesus said, you know, when you stepped out of the boat, all the weight was on this side, on me. Right, And then you started to waver. You started to think, well, this doesn't look like uh, reality. Because, well, in his defense, it wasn't. It doesn't look like it should. I shouldn't be able to walk on this water. Why? You know, and Jesus said, why are you wavering? So, now, as I said, the Bible is full of, of believers who have doubts. And we're going to keep on this for a second. And again, um, doubt means to be uncertain, hesitant, um, even tentative. But there's this, um, there's this theological, I call it a theological quantum leap, and we have a lot of them. But we make this theological quantum leap when we look at believers of God, followers of Christ, doubting him, doubting Christ, doubting God. And we somehow equate that with God doubting us, which is completely false, not true at all. God never wavers, he never changes, he is always with us. To prove that or to illustrate that, I want to use a different translation. That's a CEB translation. I want to look at the NLT, the same verse NLT. Peter coming out of the boat, sinking. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed Peter. You have so little faith, Jesus said. He said, why do you doubt me? Peter, we can understand, doubting his own abilities to get out of the water, or get out of the boat, excuse me, and walk on the water. But that's not what Peter was thinking when he got out. He didn't get out saying, I can do this since Jesus is doing I can, well, now with Jesus' help, with Jesus' guidance, with Jesus' presence, then, yes. So Jesus said, not only were you wavering, but you're, you're doing that against me. You're doubting me now. So let's move on from there. Again, we always refer, we see, when we see doubt in the Bible, we see it referring to believers. We see it to followers of Jesus. With the disciples, we see Peter doubting. And we call one of them doubting Thomas. We see Thomas doubting. Right? We don't see Judas doubting because Judas wasn't in this whole thing for salvation. He was in it for the dollars. I can show you a dozen verses if you, trust, or if you question that at all. So let me ask you this. Um, my first point this morning, and I don't have it in the form of a question, so I'm going to lose on Jeopardy. <laughs> but I want to know, what's the source of your doubts? I want you to think about that for a second. What's the source of your doubts? The biblical answer that I'm going to give you this morning might surprise you. What the Bible says about that. And so, to illustrate what we're talking about this morning, I'm going to use um, a psalm this morning. We're going to look at, we're going to unpack with the, with the time we have left, which is, what, four hours we got left, right, this morning? I want you to look at Psalm 73. Um, and I, I grabbed a pew Bible, 
It's in this Pew Bible on page 423. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, about these psalms. Um, so this is the psalm of Asaph. Uh, now Asaph, um, you can read about him um, in, in First and Second Chronicles like I did while I was preparing for this. He was a Levite. He was a priest, right? And he was assigned by King David as a worship leader in the Tabernacle Choir. And again, you can read all about that in First and Second Chronicles. Now, Asaph is also mentioned as a seer or a prophet. That's page 423. He's also mentioned as a seer or a, or a prophet. At any rate, Asaph was a gifted individual who understood where his gift came from. Um, and he used it to praise God and to communicate God's words. Now, a little historical content here. Asaph has a series of, of psalms. You've probably never heard the name before. We, we gloss over these, um, these psalms so quickly. If you've ever read Psalm 73, I'm, I'm guessing we haven't actually taken time to, to actually read it. We probably uh, read Psalm 73 like we drive 100 miles an hour on glare ice and just hope to get to the other side of it. But there's so much here that he's talking about. He also wrote Psalm 50, and he's credited for about the next 10 psalms. And these psalms have a lot in common. Um, He's talking about um, some uh, of of Israel's enemies, is what he's talking about. And how God um, judges them or how God doesn't judge them. Right? And all that leads up to doubts about God that lead to questions about God and and, and doubting that again. And um, Asaph is having this emotional reaction to what's happening around him, what he's seeing. He's talking about a crisis. He's, he's got this crisis of doubt. And because of what, again, what's happened to him. Um, can anybody relate to a crisis of doubt because of something happening to us, some of the circumstances that happened in our lives? So, okay, we can read about God's people um, experiencing what we experience. Right? We talk, I talk all the time about applying God's word to our lives. That if we're not applying God's word to our lives, then, then we're just spinning our wheels. But in a case like this, we get to apply us to God's word. We get to put ourselves in Asaf's shoes. And we get to walk around in the world that he's walking. We get to experience what he's experiencing. We get to hear the confessions that he's coming out with that relate to us. You know, and when the verses that we want to sing out in our own heads. So as people of God experiencing what we experience, this is Asaf right here. And now he begins with a statement of faith. Right? Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Right? Translation, God is good. And you're supposed to say all the time. Yeah, and all the time, God is good. All right, so he says, that's my thesis statement, and I don't want to get away from that. But he's also saying, I'm going to get away from that. Because I'm not sure I really comprehend that right now. Because look at this, he said in verse 2, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Right? He said, I, I'm not sure I can say that God is good thing right now because what I'm experiencing isn't lining up with what I've been hearing. So when he talks about you know, stumbling, and, and I'm, I'm staying to the NASB so you can read along with it in, on page 423 if you want to. So I'm staying here, but um, some of the, uh, of the translations, English translations, say, I lost my foothold. Right? I stumbled. I came close to stumbling. I came close to slipping. I came close to losing my foothold. If you were walking down the sidewalk here, which now all goes all the way to the hospital, right? 
If you were walking down the sidewalk here and you stumbled over something, you wouldn't say, oh, I almost lost my foothold, right? Asaf is not talking about something that's like this. He's talking about traversing something that's more like this, right? Have you ever been mountain climbing before or rock climbing? Boy, we used to do it in Alaska all the time. This guy, uh, he was a trombone player, Dave McCormick, and this guy was an animal. And you try to follow him up, forget it. But the one thing you learn about rock climbing really quickly is that you don't move a hand, finger, foot, or toenail until you know where the next one is going. And then when we're really sure about where that hand is going, then we'll move it up like this, right? And Dave's already at the top saying, come on, sandwiches are ready, right? So here's me going up at the side, right? But then Asaf says, I was doing that and something unexpected happened. Something gave way. Something I wasn't calculating for happened, and I almost stumbled. I almost slipped. That's the language. That's the poetry that he's using when he's talking about his relationship with God, when he's talking about how he's viewing God. Right? Something big happened that I wasn't expecting, and I didn't see it coming. Well, what was that that happened that he didn't see coming in verse 3? He says, I was envious of the, uh, of the arrogant, Right? I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Can we highlight prosperity there? Prosperity is, uh, is probably the one Hebrew word that you know very well. What's the one Hebrew word you know really well? It's like, uh, <laughs> bagel? Is that Hebrew? No. <laughs> shalom, right? Ah, oh, there it is. So shalom not only means peace, but it means completeness. And so he's saying, all right. Verse 1 said, I know that God is good to Israel. Right? I know that God is good to his people. I get that. I understand that. I'm, I'm living that right now. But what about those guys over there? The ones that thumb their nose at you. And if we completely read Psalm 73 completely, we would talk about that. How they reject God. How they say no to God. How they are not living for God. And yet, they have bumper crops of corn and grain and wheat. Their cows are fat. They're prosperous. They're complete. Right? They're shalom. That's a big word in the Hebrew language. That means a lot. And he's saying, I, I just don't get it. And because I saw that, and because I'm having to deal with that directly, and like I said, all of his psalms kind of have the same kind of theme to him, because I have to deal with that directly, it's causing me to stumble. It's causing me to lose my foothold. It's causing me to question what I believe in God and all these things that I've been getting told about God all along. So I want to know what's going on here. He said, I was doing all that, right? I was, I, I was doing all those things. And then, and then I had these reactions to these questions that I was having. Right? Thumb their nose at God. Not one, they're not one of God's chosen people, and yet there they are being prosperous. So there's a source of his doubt, right? And now the stumbling, right? Stumble in our doubts. Are these things that cause us to stumble or are they cause things that cause us to do something else? If we skip to verse 13, he says, Surely in vain, you know, for no reason at all, in vain I have kept my, part, my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I've been doing what you've been asking me to do. And my crops don't look like that. And my cows don't look like that. And so here we are. What is going on? This is not adding up. This is not what I've been taught. This is not what I've been told. Right? We're supposed to judge those people. They are supposed to have hard times. They're supposed to have difficult times. And we're having difficult times because of them. 
So what's going on here? Verse 14, for I have been stricken all day long and punished every morning. We're going to get back to that in a second. Go back to 13 for a second. He says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. And for what? That's what he's saying here. And for what? He's saying all along, he's a priest. He's a Levite. This is a person that has devoted everything they are to God. Put family aside, put everything else aside, and he's in 100% every day, all day, every day. At the office late on Friday, early Monday, Saturday, Sunday. Right? And for what? And he's saying, you know, I don't really want to say it like this, but I'm going to say it like this. What's in it for me? You guys remember that movie, Field of Dreams? Ray says that the guy that built the field, I'm, I'm tap dancing for you, Jared, you ready? So he, set, he builds this field, and then it's go time. Watch this for a second. Here for work for me. Well, you wouldn't be here for work. You have a family. I know, but I want to know what's out there. I want to see it. But you're not invited. Not invited? What do you mean I'm not invited? That's my corn out there. You guys are guests in my corn. Right. No, wait. I have done everything I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it. And I haven't once asked what's in it for me. What are you saying, Ray? I'm saying what's in it for me. (laughs) Is that why you did this? For you? So that's a good question for God to come back at us with. Is that why you did this? For you? For what's gonna, what your reward is going to be? He's asking, what's in it for me? What's in it for one of God's chosen people? But again, here's the thing. The doubt he's experiencing, the doubt that he's experiencing, isn't from something that he's heard. He didn't pick up a newspaper and read an article. He didn't tune into a news channel and hear something about that. No, it's, not, it's, something, it's coming from something he's experiencing, something that he experienced. Something that he experienced that he can't account for, that he can't calculate for, that he didn't expect to move on him when he was right there and thought he was on solid ground. And our feelings of doubt come from different sources. You know, kind of like, kind of like a lake. Big lakes are, are fed by different streams and different rivers, and then that water just kind of mixes all together, right? So this, this doubt in our heart or our emotions questioning what, what our minds say God is. You know, I run into this problem all the time. I run into this problem all the time about, you know, what, what our book idea about God is and then what the world looks like. You know, with our, with our Sunday school, with our VBS, with our youth group, you know, we talk about God. We talk about what he does for us here. We talk about it one way, and then we go out into the world, and it's completely different. And so that reality doesn't line up with this reality. And since that is 99% of my actual reality, well, that must be true. And this must be something that maybe we just dabble in and we look at it for a while and, and don't really try to adapt out there. But once we can start growing this here and bringing it out there, that's when things start to change. We stop doubting those things in our mind, questioning what's, uh, what our mind says is true. And our mind says that God is good. That's what our mind tells us. I mean, that's everything that we talk about here. And so, since we're such complex creatures, I mean, there's no getting around that. We're spiritual, we're psychological, we're emotional, we're, we're relational. We're all of those things mixed together, like those rivers coming into that lake. We're all those things mixed together. And in that same way, our feelings, our doubts, are, are, are a hodgepodge of all those things that are coming at us. And since um, Asaf is not specific, and I like that, 
He's not specific about what happened to him, about what he's facing. Yes, this is a problem, but there are other problems that he's talking about. He's saying, they're prospering, I'm not, because this is what happened to me. All right? And I, I like the fact that he doesn't, he doesn't lay that out, because, because now we can relate to it. Right? We can, again, apply ourselves into his words and into his situation. Because if we all sat down, we sat down in a, in a circle, we said, well, what's causing us you know, these afflictions? What's causing us to doubt who God is, that, that God is good? You know, everybody would have a different verse to the song. You know, but, but, but the chorus would still rhyme. Right? We'd still be singing the same chorus. And Asaph here is singing that chorus for us. He's putting skin on these words that we can't express. And these emotions that we think we're not supposed to have. He's like, no, this is not lining up the way I expect it to. Let's unpack this and talk about this. And God is like, giddy up, let's talk about it. If you were trying to write a perfect book, you wouldn't write and include people that are actually doubting the person who wrote this. Right? The reason he does that is so that we can relate to it. And we can get some answers. That God understands that this stuff is tough to get. It's tough to understand what's going on every day of our lives and every moment of our lives. But God said, let's, let's work on it together. Here, listen to what Asaph said. Let's just look at what he was talking about. And he doesn't say, my barns burned down or, or my cows died or I got robbed. Or He doesn't say that, right? He doesn't need to. Again, his verse is going to contribute to that song that we're all singing. But again, the chorus is where we all come together. So we might have questions, and we're afraid to ask them. You know, that are, they're causing us to have these doubts, these waverings. You know, like, where did we get the Bible? You know, how, how do we know about the truthfulness of God? How historically credible is Jesus in the, in the Gospels? You know, we want to know those things. And we start asking those questions. Inevitably, you're going to have a, a Christian friend that says, shh, just, just believe. Just, just, just believe. Well, you know what? Sometimes that's not enough. Now, having said that, there is a point where we have to take a leap. We have to take a leap of faith. Um, and I'll get more to that in a second here. But understand... Understand that faith does not come at the expense of reason. Right? The more we understand about our reality, the more we understand that reality isn't exactly as we perceive it. You know what I'm talking about? I've talked about stuff like this before. Like this, this, this music stand. When we talk about the atoms and the molecules that make it up, this music stand is actually more not here than it is here. There's actually more space between the molecules than the molecules take up themselves. So the reality as we... You guys are looking at me like, what what is going on here? Point is this, and there's no getting around this. Reality is not always the way we perceive it. I'm not saying it's false. I'm saying it's not the way we perceive it. Reality doesn't always jive with what we're looking at and what we're thinking. So faith is not... Here's where I'm going with this. Faith is not the opposite of reason. What we have faith in is actually built on very reasonable claims. Eyewitness accounts. It's all there. So it's, you'll, you'll hear people all the time, oh, you believe in God, you have faith. Well, then check your brain at the door and just listen to whatever they're going to tell. That's not the way it goes. We are free. We are asked. We are welcome to ask questions. And we are welcome to question God about what's going on. But that God is good part and some of the other stuff might fall into place and might not always look like that. Faith is not the opposite of reason. 
So now, Asaf here shows us how to use point three, the springboard, how to springboard our faith over doubt. One of my favorite books is um, The Pilgrim's Progress. I think we have a picture of it there. It's one of the covers you can buy. John Bunyan classic. Anybody read it? Yeah, I got a couple. All right. It's a journey about a man named Christian um, who goes from the cross where he lays down the burdens of sin and he's lifted all the way to to heaven, uh, which is called the Celestial City in in the book. And the difficulties that, that Christian faces along the way are highlighted by the difficulties that we, as Christians, face along our journey, our path, our progress. Some of the highlights along the way are a place called Vanity Fair um, and the Battle of Worldliness. There's Battle of Worldliness there. There's the Slough of Despond, where he faces depression and despondency, much like, you know, sometimes comes to our, our Christians' lives, Christian lives. And then Christian, in, in one chapter, Christian and, and his companion, Hopeful, um, find themselves in Doubting Castle. Oh, that's where he's going with this. They spend the night in, on the, the grounds of Doubting Castle, not realizing that they are in the property of, of Giant Despair. That's the guy that owns the place. And his wife's name is Distrust. Right? They get captured. They get put in the dungeon in Doubting Castle where um, Bunyan says they are scolded like dogs and beaten with heavy clubs and told they will never escape except by death. And then it's suggested that they just go ahead and speed that part up because they'll never escape anyway. And just, you know, Christian actually considers that for a few minutes. But then one night at midnight, Christian realizes hmm, he's had the answers all along. He says, quote, What a fool I've been to remain in this castle of doubt when I've had the key to the door all along. The key to the door of Doubting Castle, to get out of that dungeon. I won't quiz you to see if you remember what that key is, but the key to unlock the door of doubt and escape is the key of promise. The key of promise. It's God's promises that spring us over that gap, that gap of faith that can't be mathematically or biologically or even uh, philosophically proven by any stretch. God will bring you up to that point. And then he says, now it's up to you. You guys ever heard of a guy by the name of um, Sheldon Van Auken? Sheldon Van Auken was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, good friends of C.S. Lewis. They went through a lot together. They both lost their wives uh, around the same time, and they were helping each other through that. Sheldon Auken, if you guys are taking notes, um, he wrote a book called A Severe Mercy. By the way, I was telling Sue this the other day that when I was in seminary, and any time my professor, any professor mentioned a book in reference to something, I went home and read that book. <laughs> Sheldon Auken, A Severe Mercy, again, friend of C.S. Lewis, he says it like this. He's talking about that, that gap, that leap of faith, that springboard of faith, of those things that, that, that cannot be proven. He says it this, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. He said, when it came to believing in Christ, there was a gap, listen to me now, there was a gap between what was possible and what can be proved. There's a gap between what is possible and what can be proved. It's possible that Jesus is God. That Jesus was sent here as the Savior of the world. But we can't really 100% prove that mathematically, biologically, or philosophically. We can't prove that there's, a, there's that leap of faith. 
Now again, faith is based on some very solid evidence and some very solid claims. Right? So he said, how can I, he says, how can I cross that gap? He said, if I was going to trust Christ with everything I had, with all certainty, I, I, I wanted all certainty. He said, he said like this, he said, I wanted letters of fire written across the sky. Well, that didn't happen. So he said, I stayed on the sidelines. But then this is the realization that he came to. He said, but then I realized that there was not only a gap in front of him, a leap of faith, but there's also a gap behind him, which is also a leap of faith, which also contains unprovable evidence. It may be impossible, mathematically, to prove that Jesus is God. It's equally impossible, mathematically speaking, to prove that Jesus isn't God. So he said, when I stood there in that gap, and I had a chasm on one side and a chasm on the other side, he said, when I realized that the leap of faith was just as difficult going backwards as it was going forward, he said, I flung myself to Christ with everything I had. And it's made all the difference in the world. Yeah. So we need, listen to me, to cling to the promises of God. Right? That's what Christian realized when he was in Doubting Castle. He had the key all along. He had God's promises. We talk about that all the time, that this is a book chock full of God's promises. Right? The things that he has in store for us. And not just cling to them one and done kind of deal. Not just cling to them on a daily basis, but cling to them by a, on a minute by minute basis. So how do we tie all this together? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I'm kind of curious too. See, my purpose this morning is to calm our doubts, our, our waverings. The waverings... The way of believers, right? Just like Asaf does. And I'm going to conclude with him here in a second. The way we calm those doubts, that wavering, is we point to the promises of God. And again, that's not a blind leap of faith. That's not check your brain at the door and start believing and start trusting. No, it's, it's based on some very solid evidence. More evidence than any other historical book in the history of the world. Point us to the promises of God. I'm also saying this. You know, Sheldon Van Auken is the guy I talked about, uh, Severe Mercy, wrote that Severe Mercy. He said, I'm standing here. There's a gap going this way, a leap of faith going this way, but there's an equal leap of faith going back that way. And we start talking about the promises of God, the difference that God makes in our lives. It's a no-brainer to leap, like he said, fling himself with everything he has towards Christ. It's a no-brainer. So now, Psalm 73, Asaf ends it like this. He goes through a lot of different things, just like Christian went through a lot of different things. He says this in verse 28, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Give me one more minute to break this down. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. He's claiming it. He's owning it. We went past that first opening statement where he said, God is good. Now he said, possessive pronoun, right? That God is is my good. Not just good. He's my good. 
And what resulted in that, or what's the result of that? I have made the Lord God my refuge, right? my place of safety. When my foothold slips, right? when the ground gives way, when these things that I can't account for, that I can't calculate for, that have these unexpected things happen, God is my refuge, my strength. right? And again, Remember that clip we said? Is that why you did it for you? No, that's not why God does it. That I may tell of all your works. That I may tell of all your works. That's what he does for us. That's who he is. That's why when we come to that gap, we need to fling ourselves over it. And maybe we need to do that, like I said, on a daily basis to remember that we've done that. Fling ourselves full force with everything we've got towards Christ our Savior. Want to talk some more physics real quick? Just kidding. Amen. Come on, let's stand up. 